Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. We've been telling you for weeks about all the exclusive good stuff you'll get when you sign up to our new podcast subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. Tomorrow, a brand new show launches, The Weekend Intelligence. We're going to tell you what it's all about. And Laughing Gas inspired the romantic poets and transformed anaesthetics. Now, the British government is going to ban its recreational use. Our correspondent investigates the controversy, and she does inhale. But first... In Syria overnight, American forces carried out airstrikes against bases that it said were used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its partners. The Defense Department said the strikes were in response to at least a dozen attacks this month on American personnel in Syria and Iraq. America's Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said the move was separate and distinct from the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Not everyone's going to see it that way. For decades, Iran has been funding, backing, and stoking conflicts all over the Middle East, from Syria all the way down to Yemen. In the Palestinian territories, it's the force behind Hamas. In Lebanon, it props up the militia group Hezbollah. Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently said that America would like to avoid a wider regional conflict. We don't want escalation. We don't want to see a second or third front develop. Iran might in fact like to see exactly that at its peril. Iranian leaders are really trying to thread a needle. They want to escalate tensions with the West, with the US, with Israel. Nicholas Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. But they don't want to trigger a full-blown war. It's a very hard balance to calibrate. It's very hard to do and very, very dangerous. So what's the calculus here? What does Iran stand to gain by trying to escalate this conflict? In a way, they've already pocketed some gains. The biggest win so far has been the delay to the normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It appears for the time being that any deal between the two countries is on pause. That's a big deal because it would have amounted to a major victory for the United States. With America's backing, four Arab states have already normalized relations with Israel in recent years. That's all kind of part of the process known as the Abraham Accords. And adding Saudi Arabia to that group, the most powerful Arab state, would fundamentally change regional politics. And it would also have left Iran very isolated in a predominantly Sunni-led region. Uh, You'd have seen Sunni power brokers working with Israel. Okay, that's the, the big picture, the strategic play. What about the short term? The crisis has, I think, been quite good for the economy. 
Regional turmoil always helps increase the price of oil, and oil's risen about $5 a barrel since Hamas's deadly assault into Israel on October the 7th. And so, of course, Iran is taking advantage of the run-up in prices. They're also pumping more than 3 million barrels per day, which is the highest it's been since America withdrew from the nuclear deal in 2018. And the reason they're able to do that is because America has just got too much going on to be enforcing sanctions, but also it doesn't want to add to inflationary pressures, particularly in an election year. But doesn't all of this kind of create risks also for Iran trying to escalate a war? Absolutely. I think there's recognition in Iran that if there was to be an all-out war, it would be an unwinnable one. It could draw Iran into a full-blown conflict with America, and I think the Ayatollahs are realistic enough to want to avoid that. And then they also have to worry about their domestic base. A regional war could prompt more protests at home by Iranians who are fed up with their regime's foreign adventures. And it comes at a particularly tense time in Iran at the moment because Iranian officials have pronounced an Iranian schoolgirl to be brain dead after she was beaten by morality police at the beginning of the month. And of course, that evokes memories and outrage on the part of an Iranian population that exactly this time last year was on the streets protesting against the death in custody of Masa Amini, another young woman who was arrested by morality police for not properly wearing a veil. As you say, Nick, it's a very fine line to walk. How, how does Iran go about escalating just short of something far worse? Iran has been building up its network of proxies across the entire Middle East for decades. They're supplied with Iranian arms. They're well-trained. And this network is known as the Axis of Resistance, and it's become something which, for Iran, is probably even more an effective deterrent than its nuclear program. And this is particularly effective in southern Lebanon, where you have an armed Shia group, Hezbollah, which has more clout and more firepower than any other force in the country, including its armed forces. And leaders from Hezbollah have been warning that if Israel was to launch a ground operation, they would consider that to be a red line and they would act. And so you've seen Israelis that have already been evacuated from towns along their northern border with Lebanon. You've seen increasing skirmishes across that border and just a game of tit for tat, which is escalating. And it's really hard to know how that can be contained. We know that the United States has two carrier strike groups that are already in the region. On the one hand, that could be a warning particularly to Hezbollah and its uh, backers, not to escalate. On the other, I think there is concern in Lebanon that Israel might take advantage of that to launch a preemptive strike, knowing that it would have American cover. And this game of brinkmanship could easily spin out of control. And you said the this axis of resistance is, is more of a network. Who are the other players that matter here? You've got the Houthis in Yemen. They're a Shia force that have controlled the capital for almost a decade. They've been fighting a war with Saudi Arabia. They're heavily armed. Last week, they fired three cruise missiles and drones up the Red Sea towards the Israeli port city of Elat. And those missiles are believed to come from Iran. They were intercepted by an American destroyer in the Red Sea, but that clearly poses one threat. And then you've got scores of Shia militias operating in Iraq who pretty much dominate government there. And in recent days, they've renewed their targeting of American interests in Iraq. They've been lobbying rockets at bases housing American troops. So I think there's a kind of implicit warning that if Hamas falls in Gaza, then Western interests will fall elsewhere in the region. And how much say-so does Iran really have over all of these groups? And, and how much will they necessarily do what Iran says? 
Yeah, I think the answer to that is we simply don't know. What Iran is saying is that Hamas launched its breach of the frontier with Israel, and Iran did not have prior knowledge of that operation. The same is also said about Hezbollah's descent into war with Israel in 2006. So it does seem that these are not groups which operate by remote control. And I think there's also concern that since Qasem Soleimani, the head of the foreign arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, was killed by America three years ago, the commanders in Iran have probably lost more control over these groups. So, you know, we know they're heavily armed. We know that they're ideologically driven and they could be loose cannons. But of course, these proxies also have to worry about their own domestic context. And they are juggling with the dilemma of knowing that if they do escalate, they really could risk alienating the countries that have given them shelter. And the countries that are giving all of these groups shelter, how have they responded so far? I don't think particularly positively. If you look at Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, he's reluctant to enter the fray. He's already concerned, I think, about Hezbollah and other groups sort of running amok inside Syria. He doesn't have the Russian presence that he used to to keep them in check. And he is nervous about, about the risk that they could provoke a, a second or perhaps a third front with Israel. And he particularly doesn't want to go into bat for Hamas. He views them as a, as a group that he harbored, gave them refuge, and then they turned against him in 2011 when they joined other Syrian rebels in rising up against his rule and then picking up arms against him. The Lebanese are also concerned that they could be dragged into a war between Hezbollah and Israel that is going to kind of pummel their hopes of a tourism revival. They're already struggling with major crises, financial crises, and the destruction of infrastructure that was caused by a port explosion. So they're in no desire for yet another escalation. They're exhausted. And then if you look at Iraq as well, it's really nervous about being caught in a power struggle between Iran and America. It really wants a chance just to recover as well. So each of the proxies has to worry about their domestic base, but then they also have to show that they remain a credible force and are true to their rhetoric when they say that there are red lines and they will intervene. But what about the strength of that rhetoric? What happens if any of these satellite groups escalates beyond the point of no return here? And I think we're already seeing a major escalation. If you kind of rewind the clock one decade, two decades, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been confined within its own narrow borders. You haven't seen this dramatic intervention from outside, at least since 2006. And now there's a major risk that that's changing. And there's a risk that if the West is drawn in, then Russia and China might get involved too. So for the time being, I think Iran has been quite comfortable pocketing fairly limited gains if the region spins out of control and into a conflagration. I don't think that's something which anybody is going to come away from celebrating. Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. Jason, it's always a pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're going to have to do an unusual thing here. Yes, a very unusual thing. We're going to have a chat on the show. 
People don't hear us actually talking, but we have a message to share. A very important one. Tell us. Right. So, you know, when we first launched this show in 2019, the aim was to bring you the most important stories in the world every weekday, right? Yes. Even though I wasn't here in 2019, I am familiar with Wherever you were in the world, you knew that. Yes. And without blowing our own trumpets too much, it's been a success. More than one billion downloads of The Intelligence and millions of you have listened to us since. And improbably, perhaps, we're now going to mess with the formula or add to the formula, actually. Um, We have some news of our own or a tell the good people. Well, you have probably heard this from one of us already, but we have a new show coming. It's called The Weekend Intelligence and it's launching this Saturday. Okay, what is it? It is a new long format show dropping every Saturday. And unlike the weekday episodes of The Intelligence that you know and love, where we have a few stories, it's one story told in depth. So it's going to be our new home for storytelling, the people and places that are on the front line of the stories that you hear every weekday. So this is not just a long version of the weekday show? No, 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 no. It's so much more exciting than that. Sometimes there's more to a story than we have time to tell. The weekdays are busy. And on weekdays, our mission is to get you the most important stories concisely and authoritatively. But some stories just need that bit longer to tell. They need space to breathe. And that's why the weekend is perfect for them. We have super skilled reporters around the world who are eager to tell deeper and longer stories. And so we want you to meet them. We've got so many of them. We can't wait for you to hear them. Jason, tell us which ones you're most excited about. So a couple I'm really excited about. Well, one of them uh, appeals to the science nerd in me. It's about living on the moon. What do, you, uh, what do you reckon of that as a notion? I actually think I'd be quite lonely on the moon. No, no, this is uh, about actual colonies on the moon, all the, the efforts by governments, by agencies, by engineers to, to really actually go and to live for months or even years on the moon. And it's also really about why we even want to do that, why we want to leave the Earth in the first place. Um, Another is a frankly wild story about a former prisoner of war from eastern Ukraine now lives by himself in a cabin in the forest that he built. Uh, It's a story about trauma, about war, uh, really broadly about the the huge psychological pressures that that people are feeling in Ukraine. I haven't had a chance to learn what you've been looking into. What, What are the stories you're looking forward to? Well, I'm really, really fascinated with women's health. I think it's something we don't really talk about enough. And I've really been obsessed with a story we have coming about fertility and IVF. I literally cried on my listen to the first edit. It's two economist journalists telling us the story of their journeys with IVF. And more broadly, it's a very moving story about a very unique experience of grief that we don't hear very much about. Then there's also quite a different story, a very thought-provoking one, on reparations, And it's a story of a British family traveling to Guyana to confront the legacy of one of their ancestors who was involved in the very violent trading of slaves. Like I said, thought-provoking, very deep, and you really, really, really should have a listen to that. Jason, are you going to tell them how people can have a listen to that? Yep, our taskmasters insist that we do that. Uh, Okay, everybody, first thing is, every Saturday, right, set a calendar reminder so you can get a new episode every week. And, of course, you're going to need to be a subscriber, either to the print or digital editions or to our new podcast subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. You'll have heard about the half-price offer already, and great news, it extends until the end of October, so there's still a couple more days to sign up. And if by some reason you're still not utterly convinced, you can sign up for a one-month free trial. To do that, big surprise, there's a link in the show notes, or you can just search for Economist Podcasts. Yes, it will take you a couple of minutes. It's so simple that even my boyfriend managed to do it, and it will really, really be worth your time. 
And the stories that we're talking about are going to be so good that I might even be able to convince my wife to listen after all this time. Can you imagine? Okay. Uh, do I thank you? Do you thank me? Uh, yeah, awkward that. Um, should we uh, a count of three? Three, two, one. <laughs> thank Thanks, Ore. <laughs> Okay, so now you have one more big reason to sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus if you're not already a print or digital subscriber. And for just a couple more days, you can do so for half price, just a couple of euros, bucks, or pounds a month. Now, if you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you'll need to link your subscription to your podcast app to unlock all of our shows. Don't worry, it's easy, and you only have to do it once to have access to everything forevermore. Today, we're publishing an extra mini-episode alongside this show, a short welcome to the world of Economist Podcasts Plus. Click on it, then enter your subscription details when prompted to link your account. If you don't use Apple or Spotify, or for anything else you need, go to the FAQ page in the show notes, where you'll also find our handy video for a step-by-step guide on how to unlock it all. Or just search for Economist Podcasts. But seriously, get on it. That half-price deal expires soon, and you definitely don't want to miss that first episode of The Weekend Intelligence tomorrow. <laughs> I wish I wasn't doing this on my own. sound of me consuming laughing gas. The British government has just decided that by the end of the year, in Britain, taking laughing gas will be punishable by two years in prison and dealing it will be punishable by 14. You can call it whatever you like, laughing gas, whippets, nitrous oxide, NOS. It's got lots of different names like most drugs. It's just a gas that you inhale, usually by putting it into a balloon and then sucking the air into you. People take it because it just feels really nice. (laughs) It's a very, very benevolent, jolly drug. Not seen as benevolent by everyone, of course. Its critics condemn it as hippie crap. And its canisters are described as a plague and its uses described by some as a terrifying epidemic. People get very cross about nitrous oxide today, but they didn't always. It suffered a spectacular fall from grace. This gas was once taken by pretty much anyone who is anyone in intellectual British life. It breathed life into the romantic poets. It transformed anaesthetics. According to those who took it, it let you touch the face of heaven. When one man took it, he said, I believe that the atmosphere of the highest of all possible heavens will be composed of this gas. The British chemist Humphrey Davy was particularly associated with it. He tried it initially to see if it could be used for medical purposes and then just got immensely into it. He wrote pretty much an entire book in which he gives it to various animals. So he gave it to a bee, which he found was unable to fly in a straight line. 
He gave it to a lizard, which staggered around. He gave it to a butterfly, which was rather sweet. He wrote that the butterfly wrapped his wings around his body and then fell down senseless. Scientists discovered laughing gas in the 18th century, just around the time when they were starting to realise that the apparently insubstantial air all around them, in fact, contained multitudes. A scientist called Joseph Priestley discovered that there was a dangerously fiery gas in the air that, when piped into a jar, made candles burn more brightly, and that was oxygen. He discovered that there was a colourless gas that, if you bubbled it through water, made it fizz pleasingly, and that was obviously carbon dioxide, and he was the inventor of soda water. Oddest of all, scientists discovered this gas that, when you piped it into researchers, made them feel like they had discovered the secrets of the universe. It can give you this sense of utter omniscience. The psychologist William James would later write that it made people talk meaningless drivel. And James should know because he took a lot of it and talked an awful lot of meaningless drivel. Humphrey Davy, after inhaling gallons of the stuff, declared that nothing exists but thoughts. James, after he'd taken rather less, said there are no differences but differences of degree between different degrees of difference and no difference. These words might be total rubbish, but the realisation that laughing gas inspired the mere chemistry could manipulate a mind. That was really profound, and that would start to change how people thought about what the brain was. Or as James put it, something might sound like nonsense, but it is pure nonsense. In modern day England, users have proved almost as enthusiastic as Humphrey Davy was. Laughing gas is now the second most commonly used illicit drug in England and Wales among 16 to 24 year olds, after cannabis, of course. And it's easy to see why. It's really simple to buy. Its canisters are sold for use in whipped cream dispensers. You can just buy them on Amazon. Reviewers archly praise it as an excellent cooking accessory. There are some reasons to be cautious. It is a drug, and so, like any drug, there are downsides. Heavy, long-term use can cause nerve damage. Prolonged exposure can be problematic. That's why some hospitals are taking it out as a pain relief, because they don't want their staff to be damaged by it. Addiction is unlikely, but over-enthusiasm is perfectly possible. After taking gallons of the stuff, Humphrey Davy definitely became a bit over-keen on it and said that he used to start to want it any time he saw anyone breathing, which was obviously quite a lot of the time. There's been a bit of a police crackdown on it recently. It was already illegal to deal in it, and that has moved people from using the smaller canisters to the larger cylinders, which is the equivalent, said one expert, of moving teenagers from drinking shandy to drinking neat vodka. And critics say that the new law, when it comes in, will exacerbate this kind of behaviour, people taking the stronger version rather than the weaker version, and it will just get more dangerous. And so, as so often, a ban might sound like it's nonsense, but it's much more likely nonsense. <laughs> Definitely improvement on 11am, 10.30am most mornings. <laughs>all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Lornyuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Peter Grenitz and Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.